Welcome to the Living Clean Podcast. I'm your co-host Mason S. With me as always is Travis K. This podcast is not meant to replace meeting, sponsorship, step work, or service. This is meant to be just another tool in your recovery toolbox. Our guests are here to share their experience, strength, and hope with recovery through Narcotics Anonymous. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back to the Living Clean Podcast. This is episode number 23. I'm Mason S. I'm an addict. With me, as always, is TK. Yeah, yeah. And we're back for another episode. We are halfway through the maintenance part of the step, step 11 today, nearing the end of this journey. Uh, with us today is my man, Mo M. Um, Mo, you want to tell us your clean date and where your home group's at? Man, I'd be glad to. So my clean date is August 27th of 2021, and my home group is the Newcomers Group in Hornwall, Tennessee, which is, in fact, the best home group in the world. Hmm. Man, I'm, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to argue with you. I love that home group. Um. So tell us a little bit about coming from where you come from and finding recovery in this little small town because for you this is a different pace of living is it not man it's an entirely it's really a culture shock for me okay so i'm a city boy moving here has definitely been a culture shock and uh i i was born in new orleans louisiana but I moved to Nashville, Tennessee in 1990 at the age of six and lived there ever since then um, with a few attempts of a geographical solution in between, you know, trying to find an easier, softer way, thinking that that was going to be my fix. But um, I had been to Hohenwall a couple of previous times because there's a treatment center in Hohenwall. And I'd always feel like, where the fuck am I at? You know what I mean? Like, I'm out in the middle of nowhere in BFE. And this last time, man, I was just, uh, I was had the gift of desperation, and I wanted something different. And I actually came back through treatment again. And uh, I didn't know what I was going to do when I got there, but it was definitely not my plans to end up here in Hohenwald permanently. But God had different plans than I did, so here I am. Uh, do you find yourself missing the fast-paced life of the big city? Well, to be honest with you, no. I'm, my life is so full in recovery today. You know, like, my home group and the people in it is my family, and I'm heavily involved in service. And, like, through this journey, man, I've gotten my life back. I've got a job I enjoy doing. And... I actually do go to Nashville often. We do asphalt recovery and I go to meetings and man, I, I can't deal with the traffic anymore. <laughs> Just to be honest with you, man, it is ridiculous. You know, I always tell people I love that Nashville is where it's at and I love having access that it's not too far of a drive that if I want to go up there and do something, I can, but you know, I also love being, enough distance away that you're not affected by traffic because even in like you know the columbia spring hill area now you're you're affected by the traffic still i don't think i've ever heard of a road road case and oh my no i don't think so <laughs> that's true well right. i mean look how blessed i am man like it takes three minutes to get to my home group where if i was in nashville you know, it could take you up to an hour, hour and a half to get across town to get to a meeting. No doubt. No doubt. How far are you from the meeting right now? Three minutes. Three minutes. It ain't but five minutes if you took off walking, I don't believe. I don't believe so. <laughs> so, um, Mo was actually the very first person that we ever, we, we did our trial run with, um, on the trailer and we've been wanting to get him back for a long time. We happen to have somebody, um, who had something come up 
and I was on the phone trying to find somebody else. And then all of a sudden there's Mo's face pops up right there beside me at a meeting. And I thought, boom, perfect. You talk about a godsend right there. So been looking forward to getting you back on here for a while. So, um, I know you touched on a few things, just a small portion during that trailer, but why don't you give us the rundown of what life looked like before you found recovery and, you know, or tell us about your journey. Cause I know, you know, and you personally, you've had several attempts at trying to figure this thing out. So tell us what it was like and how it's going and what it's like now. So, man, I want to first, I have to say that I'm definitely not a one white key tag wonder. I'm a slow learner and I had to do a lot of research. And uh, I guess to start way back, as far as I can remember, man, I don't mind, you know, telling you my story as far as like I was born. My mother and father both have this disease that we have. And um. But as far as like, I always had material things. I never went without food or clothes or shelter or anything like that. But my first memory of life, man, is watching my father put his hands on my mother. And the first memory, if I really can think think back on it, is I was feeling afraid, okay? And I seen a lot of domestic violence and things like that growing up and dysfunction and i can remember being in a state of fear a lot and it would go from all right this crazy violence to we're going to buy you a toy or crazy violence to we're going to take you to chuck e cheese to make up for it type thing so number one that put me in a constant state of fear and then number two it started teaching me a false sense of love i feel like to where we're allowed to do anything. We're supposed to protect you, but we put you in these situations to make you afraid, but we're going to make it up to you and show you love by giving you material things. So that has been a pattern of mine that I struggle with up through adulthood, you know, until really getting in recovery and working steps. So it's funny how I got introduced to Narcotics Anonymous in the first place is I had a best friend whose mother was in recovery and she was a member of Narcotics Anonymous. And my first real exposure before even being in a meeting myself would be, I would be over at my buddy's house in this rough neighborhood and we're kids and we're smoking weed and doing shit we shouldn't be doing. And her and her friends would be at her house getting ready to go to like a NA dance or something like that. And I can always remember, especially a specific addict, would be over there and he'd be a real prick and try to purposely blow our high. And that was my first introduction to narcotics anonymous. And little did I know that y'all as a fellowship would be responsible for blowing my high over and over and over again. Because once I got a little taste of recovery, there's nothing worse than having a head full of recovery and a belly full of dope. It's just not very fun at all, man. But um, like I said, I can remember being in that constant state of fear. And I can remember, you know, six, seven years old, wanting to use things to change the way I felt way before I knew and was aware what drugs were. And I would latch on to things and obsess about things. I can remember, like, I'm a, I am like to read and I'm a book person and I can remember using books to escape reality or video games or whatever it may be until, man, um, finding drugs. And then also, I'm, I call myself, I'm also a lifestyle addict and I got infatuated with a fast lifestyle and my mother and father ended up getting divorced and my father was then on a fixed income. So he'd always live in, you know, the more poor side of town where my mother met a man who was financially well off. So I can remember like almost like two lives going back and forth from a good part of town to the bad part of town. But I started looking up to people on the bad part of town and got infatuated with this lifestyle. Right. 
And like that led me down a road of drug use and getting involved and being affiliated with gangs and stuff and doing stuff that now looking back on it, I put myself in situations where I was afraid and had fear, but I was used to being afraid because that's my first state in memory I can remember is being in fear and being afraid. So I was able to function in that fear and I got comfortable in that, man. And it was like second nature to me. But uh, my first time in treatment was probably at like 15 or 16 years old, I think in 1998, man, and nothing stuck. My first real attempt at it, you know, things got worse from jails and institutions. And at first I was able to successfully use and due to my lifestyle, sell drugs but it just, it got worse and all them yets and things I said I would never do. I became the people that I looked down on, right? As my addiction progressed, I can definitely look back and see where it progressed, man. And just got worse and worse and worse to where man constantly being in and out of treatment and institutions. And I'm a person that I'm good in a controlled environment and I can excel and do all right when I'm in a controlled environment. But as soon as I leave that environment, then it's back off to the races. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm not going to just go too much further. And you know what I mean? We all know what it's like going in and out. And I think a lot of what took me so long too was thinking, okay, I've been in a treatment or I've been incarcerated for three months, six months. I can see drugs are causing me these consequences. Well, that's my only problem. And I've been away from the drugs. So now I'm ready to go back into the same environment, hang around the same people. And I'm just, you know, I can remember consciously thinking I'm not going to use, I'm just going to sell dope or, you know, I'm just going to hang around those people. And every time, you know, I can stop, but I didn't know how to stay stopped until it got to the point, man, of total hopelessness, desperation. And the thing about it is, I want to say this, man, and uh, a buddy of mine, I heard him say this, and it's I love this statement, and it's that Narcotics Anonymous is a dangerous spectator sport. And I think it was probably 2011, I had got out of treatment, and that same guy that when I was a kid and I said was such an asshole and would blow our high, well, I ended up seeing him at a meeting, and he remembered me. And, um, man, I just started hanging out with him and going to meetings, and I was at a halfway house, and I just got involved. I got – let me say this like this. I got involved in the fellowship of Narcotics Anonymous, right, and I would go to meetings and go to functions and events and hang out with people in NA. And I was acting like a member of Narcotics Anonymous, but I wasn't living the Narcotics Anonymous program because I would still try to do things my way and not even say, all right, I'm going to ask this guy to be my sponsor. And in title, he would be my sponsor, but I wouldn't work any steps. I wouldn't really, I'd stop calling if he said something that pissed me off or gave me a suggestion I didn't want to do. And I'd hop around and say, all right, well, that's not the guy for me and get another one. And as a result of that, my story is going in and out of the rooms of NA and, you know, disappearing for a year at a time. And then I'd come back. But the constant is that every time I came back, man, these people love me unconditionally. And were there for me. And sometimes even there for me when I was in the middle of a relapse and would come get me and take me to treatment or let me detox on their couch. And man, just NA taught me about real unconditional love, man. And sometimes that's, you know, telling me the truth about things I didn't want to hear and see. But it got to the point of, like I said, finally going in and out things always progressing getting worse it got to the point of being homeless in nashville tennessee like man you can't a monkey can't sell bananas you can't be a successful drug dealer um 
all the people in that fast lifestyle either dead in prison or I've done done something to screw them over and not really communicating with them. And man, I was really just isolated and alone. And uh, I had actually been in treatment a couple years earlier. And the guy that's a member of our home group now, me and him went through th treatment together. And I'll never forget, I was in downtown Nashville figuring out how I was going to get one more. And he happened to call my phone, man, because I had to have a phone. Even though I was homeless, I had to make sure that I had a phone because how else am I going to call and cop? You know what I mean? And he called me and he said, man, just get up here and it's going to be all right. And I got back in treatment. And like I said, God seemed fit. I have not left home wall since. And now um, I don't have enough time to sit here and tell you how much my life has changed. Like I could tell you all the outward ways that it's changed, you know, as far as having a place to live and a job and car and getting my license back and keeping the same job for over a year and starting to work on having a career, all that stuff is cool, man. But like being able to finally love myself, learning how to love people and developing a relationship with the God of my understanding, man, that's, that's where I'm at today. And just not wanting to wake up and hurt people every day and not wanting to take from people and, and wanting to offer something and give something to the community because I was really a menace to my community where I'm from for a long time. And it's only through NA and God that I'm able to do that, man. So do you, do you find that the turning point was a process or event? Is there something that you can look back on? this last time in treatment to where you said this time is going to be the time that I do something different. Or did you feel like that was just more of a process by being influenced by people that were doing the right thing? I, the whole thing was a process because even though I went in and out, in and out along the way, like I said, I, I still had information and I was learning things along the way. But this last time, I can see it now, and I want to say this. The God of my understanding plays chess and not checkers, and just I can look back on it and see how it unfolded, and it was something, a power greater than me, everything down to the counselors that I had in treatment, to the roommates that I had, the people in there, to the opportunity that I got picked for this program and treatment to be able to stay in home wall and get the opportunity to come to the home group. I did to the sponsor that I first got everything. It was a process along the way. And I can now see that it was something beyond my understanding, just laying it out to where I am today for me. I can see that too. And I, I'm very similar. You know, I can't say that there was one particular event that I just, I needed all of it. You know, I needed to be influenced by my environment. I needed other people to push me, you know, um, even after being, after taking that, you know, sufficient enough ass whooping from life, you still, you know, like you said, our higher power seems to put us in the exact position that we need to be. And, you know, look at us now. And look, I want to say this, man. I definitely have not. The only thing I've done perfectly this time is not use. But I can see where mistakes that I have made. Like I said, there's a power greater than myself, even using those mistakes to get me to a point to where my surrender level deepens and it carries me and guides me to where I'm supposed to be. Yeah, so real quick, just touch on some of the ups and downs that you've had and um, how you overcome some of them. Well, some of the ups and downs that I've had since I've been clean this time, you mean? Yeah. All right, well, first of all, you know, going, like I said, from a big city to here, has been a culture shock to me, like having to, I stayed in this program 
working, um, not kind of working for the treatment center a little bit. And, uh, man, just having to learn to humble myself, having to learn to be able to manage money, things like that, because I'm a lifestyle addict and man, a lot of, I've always ran from responsibility and had fear of being an adult. And I can say that I've had to learn how to grow up this time and learn how to become a responsible member of society. Like I'm getting my driver's license for the first time in life. I'm getting a bank account, man. I'm trying to work on building my credit. I always thought good credit, man. I could go get dope without having money. And I'm doing all these things for the first time because people in Narcotics Anonymous is teaching me how to do it, man. And like, without giving any names, man, I had to work for this one certain particular person for over a year. And I had to work on night shift. And man, working for this person has taught me more about recovery than any other thing. And I'm not, I don't mean that this person is in recovery their self, but it's like, learning how to accept people where they're at and realizing the only thing that I can change or control is my perception and accepting people where they're, where they're at and loving them even when they're not practicing a program and man, working that third shift and learning how, you know, I didn't put anything and let anything stand in the way of me getting high. Right. So I haven't let anything stand in the way of me recovering. And, you know, that's looked like for me sometimes having to um, sacrifice some sleep sometimes, man, to make sure I'm hitting the meetings like I needed to hit or, you know, just giving that extra effort and times when I felt like just laying around and catching up on rest and I still keep pushing, man. I want to say here's another thing. So, like, I caused a lot of harm to family members and stuff like that, and I'm good with some of my family, but I've got a brother that still refuses to allow me in his life, you know, and that's the wreck from the wreckage of my past. And, like, having to understand that just because I'm doing something different doesn't mean God's going to give me everything back overnight. And, you know, the only thing I'm promised is freedom from active addiction. And learning how to accept that and see my part in it and understand that if it's meant to be, it'll happen in God's time. Well, while we're on that subject, um, there's something I want to go back on that you said earlier. You were talking about being comfortable with fear. And a lot of times, you know, you were rewarded with material things, you know, to whether it was either to keep you quiet or to make you feel better or any of that. Um, and I know that's affected your life go, from that point forward. But today I want to talk about like your relationship and how it's grown with a higher power and how you've learned to replace some of that fear with, you know, with faith. Well, I need to say this. So growing up and even at the beginning of this journey, this time getting clean, man, my relationship with my higher power has changed so much. Like I always wanted to treat my higher power either like he was Santa Claus or like he was a fireman. And what I mean by that is I'm just praying, asking for a bunch of stuff or I'm praying when I need something greater than me to come put out fires. When the shit hits the fan, them foxhole prayers. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's basically all I tried to use my higher power for. And um, there was a lot of, you know, being taught certain things as a kid. And that didn't work for me, man. And I think part of my journey this time, also, the reason why went in and out in and out is because I was still trying to use somebody else's concept of a higher power that didn't really work for me. And it wasn't until this last time that I finally understood that this process and NA gives me the freedom to 
find my understanding and my concept of it and what works for me. And I want to say to use an analogy, um, me, and this is just my experience, me trying to do recovery in Narcotics Anonymous without inviting my higher power into the process is like going around with a gun with no bullets in the clip. And like, because I've been there literally on the streets, walking around with a broke gun that don't work, right? <laughs> and what it'll do is it'll give me a false sense of security. And like, there's even some people that I can use that broke gun on to scare. And I might get away with it once or twice. But like when it's a real life and death situation and I try to pull it out, it's worse than if I didn't have it to begin with. It's going to get me killed. Yeah, And that's kind of how recovery is without me inviting a higher power into it. Cause I would have a false sense of security and think, well, I'm going to meetings. I should be able to do this or that. I'm going to meetings, but really without inviting something bigger than me in the process, it just never worked for me. And that's dangerous and it can get me killed. Yeah. Do you feel like you, um, struggled or do you feel like, you know, you really, um, you know, you were really able to internalize these God steps, you know, like two, three, six, seven. Um, well, I mean, they're all God steps, but you know, the ones that mention the word God are a higher power. Did, um, did you struggle with those or is that something that, you know, you were grateful for? Or, or look forward to um, getting to work those. All right. Let me say this. Without mentioning a particular substance, the drugs that I used, a lot of people overdose and die on. In my last six months of using, I overdosed 21 times and had to be brought back to life 21 times. So I knew that there was something out there. I wasn't sure what it was. But to be honest, when I first started the steps a little bit, I was kind of going through the motions when it came to the God part. But along the way, what I've realized is, is that not only has he been there the whole time now, he's been there the entire time. And like my higher power meets me where I'm at. It doesn't expect me to come to where it's at. Like, you know, G-O-D, the gift of desperation. My experience is God put on a mask and a face of desperation and met me down in the gutter and used my pain to bring me to Narcotics Anonymous and got me to y'all to where then God for me was a group of drug addicts. And then it turned in through doing what y'all do to good orderly direction and working the steps. And it's been a process just like everything else along the way. I've built this relationship up to where now I know what I'm praying to. And I have a concept that works for me. And the funny thing is, without saying any particulars, it's not too far off from what I was taught as a kid. Right. And that's, uh, that's something that it talks about in the basic text too, uh, under our topic today, which let's go ahead and roll and transition right on into that. Our topic today is step 11, which is we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. So on that step, what do you got for us? All right, so step 11, man. I achieved conscious contact with God through working the steps, right? And like it says in the basic text, it talks about our spiritual condition is the basis for our recovery. Mm. And what that means to me is like it's an inside job. Mm. So my recovery isn't based on, we talked about, I was talking about I got all these material things back and I'm learning to be a member of society and hold down the job. And yeah, that's part of recovery. But the basis of my recovery is what's on the inside, man, like spirituality. I can't really see it or touch it. You know what I mean? So it's something 
that comes from within, man. And like, I want to share this and this hasn't really been my experience, but I've seen it happen to other people. And it talks about not floating out on a cloud of religious zeal. And it talks about finding, you know, your own way with prayer and meditation. And if you go somewhere besides narcotics anonymous, that's okay. But for me, I have to remember what brought me to the dance because I think my experience is the God of my understanding knew I was so broken that I needed something more. And this is a God given program, whatever that means to you. And it's just a roadmap back to having a personal, intimate relationship with myself, with other human beings and with the God of my understanding. So that being said, like we get all these gifts of recovery, right? And what the 11th step has taught me is instead of focusing so much on the gifts to start focusing on the giver and what it is that has given me these things in the first place. Mm. I can honestly say that I'm no guru on, but let's, let's hit on meditation for a minute. Um, what does that mean to you? Okay. So I want to tell you this, by the time I was formally working this step, I had some open-mindedness and I've tried different things. I've tried going on YouTube and watching these videos and sitting on my porch, which is a pretty serene spot for me and doing this breathing stuff and trying to clear my mind and stuff. The best form of meditation And I think it's a form of mindfulness for me in the best way it was explained to me. So like when you're rushing through, like just say you're late for work or something and you're just flying down the interstate or the highway. Right. And everything's going by as a blur. But if I take a second and slow down and stop, man, I can appreciate the trees or some cool ass farmhouse or a sunset or the clouds And for me, it's a form of meditation to just not try to just blast through life, you know, just worried about getting to some destination and just to the best of my ability, be in the moment, man, and wiggle my toes and realize where I'm at and just enjoy life for the goods, the bads, the ups, the downs. And that's kind of my form of meditation. And that's kind of, man, God speaks to me in the moments. And another big part of meditating for me is am I reacting or am I responding? Am I just talking on impulse? Like, what's my communication like? Am I trying to just be understood or am I willing to listen and understand? And that's a form of meditating for me, not just saying my first thought and reacting to somebody and taking a second and really just letting it sit and responding. You know, I like what the basic text talks about, too, is, you know, the preliminary practice is aimed at stilling the mind and letting the thoughts that arise die a natural death. You know, meditation can be a key to eliminating some of those negative, you know, for me, it's always self-hatred type thoughts, you know, allowing them to go through their natural process and die a natural death. I always love that part. And, and, um, in the basic text. Yeah, man, because like what got me using in the first place, like there's always, no matter what our background is or anything, like I was talking about fear, there's always some kind of underlying trauma or some kind of underlying insecurity or something that I wasn't able to deal with. And I still battle with those things today, but like letting that die a natural death to me is playing the tape all the way through and, you know, just realizing that those thoughts aren't necessary just because I think it doesn't make it so, you know, and feelings aren't always fact. I have a thing that I like to say, and that's don't make permanent decisions based on temporary feelings. Yeah. Do you find that you find some of the answers to some of the problems that you have comes from those times when we're finally get to a place to where we can be quiet and be still? I know for me, 
um, especially when I'm faced with a problem, I usually go and stay on the run or stay busy to the till I can forget about whatever's bothering me in the first place is usually what I do, but I never really find a solution to that problem until I'm able to slow down and, and it's usually a place where I'm either laying in the bed or I'm driving on a long drive or somewhere where I'm forced to actually have to slow down and think that out of nowhere, it seems sometimes the solution becomes so clear and so evident. It's like, where the hell has that been? But I haven't slowed down long enough to be able to find it. Do you find yourself doing that? So believe it or not, and this is a big part of the slowing down process and the meditating for me. I think I mentioned it earlier. I have a cool front porch at my house. And every night I try to spend at least 15 or 20 minutes winding down at some point and just sitting here. And like you're talking about slowing down and reflecting on my day and really being honest with myself about like what's bothering me, how am I feeling? And you're right. It's almost like the solution just pops up out of the bushes, out of nowhere. But I don't think if I didn't take that time to slow down and be with myself and be with the God of my understanding, that's how I'm able to do it. And it's funny because I never thought that a city boy like me would be able to sit on this porch and just enjoy like, man, I just seen a rabbit run across my front yard. That's cool as hell to me now. And that's, I find God in those things, in those moments. And that's where I get my clarity. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing that it talks about in the basic text too, is it says, as we grow spiritually and find a power greater than ourselves, we begin to realize that as long as our spiritual needs are met, our living problems are reduced to a point of comfort. Now, it's just a natural process for us as human beings to always, and especially as addicts to want more than what we have now. But do you find that through internalizing this 11th step that allows you to be grateful and to be comfortable with what you got now to me, comfortable and complacency is two different things, right? Like complacency to me is like, I'm not going to do anything else to progress my situation. Um, where comfort is like, I, I'm not, I don't hate the place that I'm at, even though I may want more or less of whatever's going on at the time. So I find, especially when I'm praying, man, I always try to have some kind of gratitude in my prayers. Right. Yeah. And like, if I'm saying, man, why don't I get this or Why is this happening to me? If I started out with gratitude and I can start because, man, that I haven't forgot about that gift of desperation. And my prayer is that I never do. And if I just take a second and start naming off the things that I'm grateful for, man, it doesn't take long for me to get back to a place where I'm like, man, it's going to be okay. And really like that spiritual inner peace I found because I've been in situations and been around people and myself having tens of thousands of dollars, man, and just having no kind of peace. You know what I mean? And and I don't know, man. I just feel like that prayer and staying in with that gratitude and reminding myself of the things I do have and then being aware that of like me, Mo, if my way probably still right now if i had everything well i know not probably if i got everything i wanted and desired all at once i wouldn't be capable of handling it anyway do you have a routine or something that you do daily or is this something that you know i know for me it's kind of as needed i can't say that you know i hear many people talk about having a daily routine and you know, mine's mine's something that's just like second nature. It uh, I can turn to it, you know, exactly when I need it, and um, it kind of happens, you know, um, in harmony with my life now. Just by, you know, just by co- I mean, not coincidence, but just by the fact that I've put this into practice for so long. Do you feel that way too, or do you have a routine or? How does that I work? have a routine more like when I wake up, I always shower in the morning 
and I pray while I'm in the shower, man. And it's a good place as well for me to just get centered and stuff. And I want to tell you my experience is when there's times where I've overslept and stuff, man, I can notice a difference. If I don't start my day out with that prayer and reading the gist for the day and the spiritual principle of the day, it's almost like necessary for me to do that because I can really tell a difference in my attitude when I don't do it. But then there's also times, I mean, I, the place in the situation I work in, man, I'm liable to need to pray seven or eight times through the day sometimes. No doubt. No doubt. You know, because it talks about after we've learned the power of prayer and the responsibility prayer brings with it, we can use the 11 step as a guideline for our daily program. You know, what's interesting is it says the responsibility that goes with prayer. And that always takes me back to this old timer that used to tell me that. You know, um, you know, prayer will help with a toothache as long as you're on the way to the dentist. Um, I think once I begin the process of asking for God's help, that I've got a responsibility to do my part. You know, and what's funny is, like, I've got situations like I'm overweight. I've got other things that I need to work on in my life. I find myself praying for willingness because I'm scared to death that if I start praying for help, that I may actually have to get up off my big ass and do something about it. You know, man, the best. So you said about the toothache. So my sponsor always told me God's gonna God will move mountains, but you better bring a shovel. You yeah. know what I mean? And like, you're absolutely right. That is a responsibility. Like, before I pray for something, what is the action that I'm willing to take? What part am I willing to play to make this happen? And it's my experience so far, man, to be honest with you, God really doesn't care what kind of car I drive. He doesn't care how big my house is, that type of stuff. It's all that stuff type of stuff right there is kind of like on me. And what am I willing to do? I better bring a shovel but I know that he will move mountains and guide me along and put situations and things in my path. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's why they always talk about don't ever pray for patience. Well, yeah, if I pray for patience, I'm going to find myself in a situation to where I need to be patient. You know, God's just not going to sprinkle some patient dust all over me and uh, boom, I'm patient all of a sudden it's, you know, um, Thank God that God is not an enabler, you know, because he's not, you know, we got to do our part. Uh, it's funny. You talked about patience. I always say about having tolerance. The only way I've been able to develop tolerance is to be put around some intolerable situations or intolerable people. You know what I mean? And that part in the step where it talks about praying only for the knowledge of his will and the power to carry that out. I think the power to carry that out is in the spiritual principles that we find in the steps, man. That's where my power comes from the God of my understanding and the principles of this program. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, I love how it referenced in, in this chapter, um, on step 11, it, it'll mention a couple of times. It talks about being spiritually wealthy and, you know, I feel like I have been making investments since I got into recovery into that spiritual bank account. And, you know, part of that conscious contact is still doing the things in the beginning that, you know, the same way I was investing in the beginning, it's the same way I need to invest now, you know, going to meetings and, and, you know, continuing to call my sponsor and being of service and, and doing my prayer, my praying and meditating and reading my literature and, you know, though every time I feel like I do that, I'm, I'm, um, you know, I, I'm investing into my spiritual wealth. And, uh, when I start taking deposits or when I start withdrawing, I mean, uh, you know, before long, I may be, I may have built up a large sum of spiritual wealth, but when I keep withdrawing o over a period of time, eventually I will be bankrupt again. You know, because I can't 
over I don't want to like overdraw on that account. I like the way you put that, man. And it's like I only have a daily reprieve and also daily these are things that I need to be doing to put into that. You know what I mean? Into this inside job. And like the thing for me about God's will is it like how you said about being comfortable in fear. This for me is how I practice faith now. Like if if something's happening in my life, then obviously it's God's will. And God isn't a back end type of God. Like he's only going to make it happen if I'm capable of handling it. So if something's happened, even if it's something bad, whether it be losing a job or a relationship or whatever it is, I can now have the faith to know and understand that if it's happening, my higher power's already given me the tools and what I need to get through it. So that eliminates the need for all that fear and doubt. Am I perfect at that? No, I'm a human being. But if I center myself and continue to pray and be in that meditation and slow down and get to that quiet place, then I can see, man, that I already have been given everything I need to get through whatever it is I'm going through. Yeah, there's nothing like it, man. Do you find that your praying has changed to, um, I know for me, I was asking for a lot of things when I first got clean, you know, please let me get a car. Please let me quit thinking that there's another planet fixing to crash into earth. Please let me uh, get some money. Please let me do this to where I find that my prayers are less selfish now to where it's more about thank you. And if I ask for something, it's usually guidance. Do you feel like your prayers have changed? Absolutely, man. Like I said, my prayers always have a lot to do with gratitude and um, praying just like the prayer says, just for the knowledge of his will and for guidance. And it's almost like I already know when I'm praying that it's, it's going to be answered. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't have a whole lot of fear in my life anymore. That feels good, man. You know, when you can quit praying for results and just be okay with whatever happens like that, that's where the peace and serenity that step 11 talks about comes from, man. It's like, you know, I, there, I mean, I'd be lying. There's a lot of situations that I want to work out in my favor, but what I find that's funny is sometimes what I think a situation working out in my favor is, is far from working out in my favor. There's been so many things that I had hoped had went one way that didn't go that way. That turned out to be some of the best things that ever happened to me, man. I've got situations from where I live today. You know, I was, uh, getting ready to move out from the extended program I was in to my own place. And I had this person I was going to move in with, and this is a smaller town and it's kind of hard to find places to rent. And we had our eye on this one place and man, it just, we were so set on moving there and it didn't work out. And now, man, I love where I live and I can just look back at little things like that and see where it always does work out. Man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, buddy, I can't thank you enough for coming on here and sharing your experience with step 11, telling the listeners a little bit about yourself before we go. I'd like to hear your message to the person that's out there struggling. Um, you know, maybe they've, entered treatment for the 17th time or maybe they've you know been in the fellowship before but they found themselves slipping back out and they're trying to connect through this podcast whatever type of struggle they may going on for or may have going on what's your message to that person number one i want to say most importantly keep coming back and don't ever give up mm -hmm. and just remember that it's a process and it's not an event and if you've made it this far, there's something greater than you out there that loves you and cares about you and just keep coming back, man. You know, uh, 
Live the Narcotics Anonymous program to the best of your ability. Get a sponsor, work some steps, get a home group, and do some service. Hey, so I'm I'm going to ask for a cheap plug real quick. You mentioned that your home group was newcomers. Newcomers got anything coming up here in the in the near future that somebody listening may be interested in attending? September 9th. I'm glad you asked because September 9th in Hohenwald, Tennessee at 115 Smith Avenue is our fourth annual speaker jam. And it's going to be an amazing event, man. We've got Kermit O coming to speak from West Virginia, I believe. Then we've got another speaker from Nashville, Tennessee named Jacob P. And then we've got a good friend of mine from Nashville, Ashley P, doing a workshop on sponsorship. We've got Mitzi D coming and doing entertainment. We're going to have some good food, some good fun, some good fellowship. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, you like how I snuck that in there? Man. <laughs> Yeah, y'all come check that out if you're if you're near the Tennessee area, or even if you ain't, you want to take a road trip. Come see what's going on down in this area, man. It's always a great event. This is the fourth time that we've done it. You know, us being addicts, what's funny is this whole thing started from we were going to organize like a backyard barbecue at another addict's house, and it turned into one of the biggest events that we've ever had, and then. You know, it's only grown from there, so it's really cool, really fun. Come check it out. Mo, I can't thank you enough for coming on here and doing this, man. I love you, buddy. I love you, Mason. Thank you, man. It's been a real privilege. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. Thank you for joining us on our Living Clean podcast. This is another platform that we can share our message of recovery, which is an addict, any addict, can stop using drugs, lose a desire to use, and find a new way to live. Join that no matter what club. You can contact us through text. The number is 931-306-9364.